Hi FM presents South African politics and news with the South African Institute of Race Relations. The IRR show, independent, relevant and real, is hosted by Big Daddy Liberty and Sarah Gon every Tuesday morning from 9 to 10, promoting life, liberty and property rights. Good morning everybody, Boker Tov and welcome to the IRR show. At the moment, it is just, just me. I don't know if our, our other co-host is, is, has arrived. Yes, he has. Um, this morning, I am going to probably go on a bit of a rant instead of dealing just with the topics that uh, I was that I intended to look at. In doing so, if you'd like to participate, uh, please uh, ring in the studio number zero one zero one four zero three zero two zero. Or, or telegram us at 061-895-1019. And if you want to use the method that Sikhle and I use, which dates, dates back to the ARC, you can SMS us at 34519. I, we will probably get to the subjects that I wanted to discuss, but I'm going to have a rant. Um, my children will feel very comfortable with this because I'm known as the ranting mother. I started off by reading the President's letter from the President's desk. It's got a sort of slight phony ring about it. (laughs) But basically his letter was about what are we going to, what are the ANC going to do? They are going to create a capable state. And the essence of the letter was essentially to say we're going to do all sorts of things like put competent people in the right places and fight corruption, etc., etc. I think the private sector got a mention in the third last line. It was really perfunctory, shall we say. But then I started reading today's newspapers, and, and bear in mind it's only Tuesday. And the let, let me put it this way. The results of what I've read is that nothing that the ANC is going to do is going to satisfy either the people of South Africa, business, or foreign investors, because essentially what they're going to do is trying to make SOEs better, and therefore they're going to hang on to as much of the SOEs as they, as they possibly can. Nick, you and I started to talk about it. Yeah, um, this is not a great move. I also saw that he was going on about sort of uh, we won't interfere except in cases where we do have to interfere, Yeah, which is the most sort of Ramaphosa statement that can be written. Mm. Uh, and, you know, I think ESCOM in particular is a typical example of exactly why state-owned enterprises are not a great idea. Um, because what happens is sort of the, the, the motives to produce well, to make a profit, to be efficiently run are subverted by mm. political mm. concerns. So in the case of ESCOM, of course, we have uh, overpaid staff who belong to unions who are not who can't be fired because it would cause a political problem. Mm. We have political meddling at the top because it affects the... Uh, uh, the performance of the government or the perception of the government. So they, you know, will intervene here and there to do what they want. And as a result, um, the management are in a lot of ways powerless mm-hmm. and the utility is without direction and changes on the whim of whenever a faction comes into power. In fact, I think, uh, the, the, one of the headlines rather sarcastically said that, uh, this was not a good, this is not a good year for Tumamina. Um, because anyone, who, there aren't, people are not volunteering <laughs> to join the boards of any of the SOEs because it's, I think one, one description of it was that it's the uh, graveyard of careers. Uh, 
Exactly. Who would want to be the CEO of ESCOM? You can't fix anything. You can't fix it. And, and the problem is that while the processes allow for a board to be nominated, the minister can always interfere. And <coughs> it looks like Pravin Gordon intends to do that with Transnet. He's chosen a preferred member of the board who was an ex Director, I think Deputy Director General of uh, the Department of Public Enterprises, a lady called Portia Derby, or Darby, I'm not quite sure how she pronounces her name. There is a problem. She was married to Brian Malefe, and she's going to have to sort out a whole lot of legal issues pertaining to Brian Malefe. She wasn't just married to him. They have, they have children together. Uh, no brain um, sickle. Uh, firstly, welcome to all the <laughs> listeners <laughs> who have been wondering where I was. The traffic had me this morning, but I'm glad to be in studio. Guys, I think you're, you're, you're fundamentally correct. I mean, the, the real danger here is whenever you have a business that is controlled, as Nick said, by political uh, considerations, not necessarily market considerations, then yes, absolutely, you will not have a situation where it runs efficiently, it produces anything, if anything. And the funny thing is we have a, 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 a gaggle of politicians, of leftist politicians in this country, who love talking the language of, oh, but look at China, mm. and look at all these you know, countries that, that have their version of socialism and have these big state-run industries. But if you actually look at the data, I mean, China's a good example that I want to zoom in on for, mm. for, for a second. Mm. If the, the there's an institution, um, there was an institution called the Unirule Institution that used to operate out of China, almost a bit like the Institute of Race Relations, mm. you know, um, liberal leaning organization, market oriented research, um, or free market oriented research. And they found that China's wealth, the, the wealth that China has created was 100%, 100% private sector mm, created. Mm. And when you talk about the private sector, it isn't, you know, these big industries, you know, it includes something as small as a mom and pop shop. Mm. Um, but it was fundamentally the, the re- releasing of the, the state's grip on the economy, allowing individuals, people like you and me, mm. ordinary people, to be able to start something, build an income from that income, build savings from those savings by options. Those are the three things that literally got China to be the superhouse, powerhouse rather, that it is today. And it's the three things that we're not doing in this country. We're concentrating power into the hands of politicians. And that's the ideology that continues to prevail. And if you read that letter, yeah. there's no sense by the president, president, sorry, of the urgency of realizing that actually we don't need more government. We don't need more politicians. We need to allow ordinary South Africans to build the wealth. But what terrifies me about that is that the business sector, and you have to give credit to Sipo Pichana, who's the chair of BUSA, Business Unity South Africa, to, for being critical more than, more than once, and he was this last week as well, mm. um, about the performance of the state and the, the need to, to be much more free market oriented. The big international institutions, the IMF, the World Bank, etc., have said the same thing. And, and I think one of the th- good reasons he didn't go to Davos is because he probably would have been Shat on by the big guys in, 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 in Davos because he, the, he was full of promise and they really supported him two years ago. And two years later, all we're doing is, is sort of circling the drain by trying to improve the business, the years uh, SOEs. Here's a quick one. I, I'm, I'm always very cautious when I talk about the South African 
corporate sector and really big business in this country because in most cases they're actually very complicit in what mm-hmm. the ANC is doing in terms of creating this big bulky administration that makes it very difficult for small players mm-hmm. to enter the market. Of course, if you're making it very difficult for small players to enter the market to be disruptors, then that suits you, the establishment, if you will, uh, very well. That is why when you have these, for example, they recently had that wonderful big uh, gale affair at Santon where mm-hmm. there's big business and you know the president was there, all sorts of uh, head honchos in government, but the one voice that you didn't see there, and you never hear really in those spaces of power, are small businesses. That lady who wakes up from Alexandra early in the morning at 3 a.m. to make sure she's at the taxi rank um, at 4 to serve breakfast to the t- to commuters in the taxi. That lady has no say mm. in the policy environment in this country yet. In real terms, she's one of the most important individuals in an economy. I mean, I've just, I chose taxis as a small example. The taxi driver is the same guy. You know, he wakes up early in the morning to provide a service that he gets zero uh, subsidy from, if you will, from the state. However, those who do get the subsidies, those who do get the preferential treatment from the state, they're the ones who have the ears of politicians. And one has to be cautious, therefore, of even big corporates, because you'll find they'd never have a backbone when it comes to then realistically criticizing the state. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, the recurring nightmare of South Africa is an alliance between big labor, big government, and big uh, corporations all working together to kind of sort of keep other people out of uh, the economy. Mm. I think the pro- I think the, I think the realization that big business has reached is that whatever they've done, the, or the government's done, it's not working. In other words, their 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 underpinnings are being are being shattered or potential shattered by government policy and government inaction. So, in other words, we've reached a stage where even for them, um, these, these are, this is not good. The export markets are not flourishing. So perhaps we're reaching that point where the actually may give some consideration mm. to the small sector because that's the sector one's going to rely yeah. on for uh, for employment even 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 among the sort of uh, uh, high end uh, businesses the, in the finance part they're not big entities mm. no, so, I agree. Yeah. and yeah no I, I i really agree and um as I say that, um, let's head to our first ad break. And after the ad break, we continue the conversation with Nick, but actually zoom in on a piece he wrote on Iran. Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. Hello, how's it? And welcome back to the IRR show. My name is Big Daddy Liberty. I win studio with Sarah Gunn, uh, and of course, Nick, uh, Lorimer. Annelise Cl- uh, Cleland. Um, <laughs> Nick Lorimer from the Institute of Race Relations. He is a writer and an analyst at the IRR. And again, speaking about writing and analysis, you'll find all our work, the news, opinion, and analysis on the Daily Friend website. That's dailyfriend.co.za. Nick, you wrote a fantastic piece, I think, a great piece of analysis on essentially what has been the absolute uh, turmoil, if you will, in the, you know, the Persian region, specifically with Iran, um, at the center of all the eruptions. Now, it's dominated the news cycle for the past, you know, two, three weeks now already, um, with the hashtag World War Three fears, um, on social media. But of course, we knew that there was no chance of a World War Three, but definitely heightened tensions. Mm-hmm. Nick, your piece. Um, what do you focus on? What were some of the key points you made? Uh, thanks, Isla. So basically, I, wanted to talk a little bit about uh, the guy who was killed by the Americans on the 4th of January, um, which is what started this sort of fresh round of tensions. He was a guy called uh, Qasem Soleimani, who was the leader of what's called the Quds Force, which is a subsection of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard. And that's a little bit complicated, but basically the Iranian Revolutionary Guard is a sort of uh, second army 
that is loyal to the regime in Iran and is there to make sure that the regular army doesn't overthrow it with a military coup. And the Quds Force is a subsection of that. And it is basically a, something like the CIA and the Navy SEALs kind of wrapped into one. It's uh, an organization that does spying, intelligence, political operations outside of Iran. So this guy, you know, he wasn't actually that well known except to people who sort of really closely follow the Middle East. Um, I wasn't very familiar with him when he was killed. But actually he's been an incredibly important figure over the last uh, couple of decades in the Middle East. Uh, he was made head of the Quds Force in 1997. But he has a background as a sort of war hero of Iran in the Iran-Iraq war, where he showed a lot of personal bravery um, and uh, strategic uh, skill. And as a result, he was able to expand Iran's influence and presence all across the Middle East, in countries like Yemen, in countries like Iraq, uh, in Lebanon, and in Syria. Um, and he did that often by setting up militias on the model of Hezbollah mm -hmm. in these other countries. So, sorry, can I ask, from that, can one sort of get the assumption that basically what Iran is looking to do is to spread its, its, its power out and Exactly. Move in and, and, and take over. Exactly. So, so, so Iran is, it views itself as a sort of revolutionary state, mm -hmm. right? A little bit like revolutionary France or like the Soviet Union in that it's got an ideology that it wants to spread to the countries of the Middle mm -hmm. East, except it's a religious ideology mm -hmm. rather than a, a sort of communist or something like that. Um, and, it also sees itself as the heir of the ancient Persian Empire, mm -hmm. which is a there's been some sort of Persian Empire in existence for centuries in the Middle East, and it's often dominated the Middle East. And so its leadership of that country sees itself as sort of the heir of these two things. It sees itself as the protector of the Middle East from the Zionists or from the, the West, um, which are what it sees as its main enemies. Um, it's also got like a, quite a lot of anti-Semitism woven into its sort of state ideology. And as a result, um, it sees that it need, uh, uh, there's a faction within the government that sees a need to expand into countries in the Middle East to increase their influence mm -hmm. and to block out their enemies, namely Israel and the United States. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, Soleimani, um, he, he rolls out this. He, he's able to effectively take control of Iraq after the Iraq war. Mm -hmm. So Saddam Hussein is deposed. The Americans maintain a lot of influence over Iraq for a long time, but they begin to pull out towards the sort of middle of Obama's uh, first term, I think, or, or towards the end of his first term. And at that point, the Iranian militias in Iraq begin to exert more and more influence to the point where Qasem Soleimani is basically determining who gets to be the prime minister of Iraq. Okay. And, and Iraq is... It is Iraq a majority Shia yes. country? Yes. So what's important here is that Iran, unlike most Muslims in the world, are Shiites rather mm. than Sunnis, mm. which means uh, that they're often seen as kind of outsiders by a lot of other Muslims. And they, but in Iraq, that's the one, it's the one other majority Shiite country in the world. So it's, it, there's a fertile ground there for them to kind of spread their mm. ideology there. And, uh, Saddam Hussein's regime in Iraq was majority Sunni, mm -hmm. even though that's the minority of the population. Mm -hmm. Um, so there was a lot of, uh, resentment against the Sunni community by Shiites in Iraq, mm -hmm. um, that Iran took a lot of advantage of. And what's, what's the situation in Syria, the breakdown? So, um, one of the other things that Soleimani was involved in is saving Bashar al-Assad from uh, being deposed um, during the Arab Spring in the sort of 2011 kind of kicks off. Uh, a lot of dictatorial regimes across the Middle East fall to popular revolution. Mm -hmm. But one of the ones that um, 
that resists is the government of Bashar al-Assad in Syria, which there's a revolt against it um, that quickly gets captured by a large number of groups, some of which include groups like al-Qaeda under the banner of something called the al-Nusra Front. Oh, right. Okay. And they uh, almost overthrow the regime, but the, the Iranians and the Russians manage to save Bashar al-Assad from, uh, from complete destruction in that country and in return turn him into sort of a client state, someone who has to sort of help them along and buy their weapons and give them intelligence and that okay. sort of thing. And it would give two things. It would give them access to the Golan Heights, which is the exactly. direct border, border with, Israel, with Israel, and also access to uh, close access to the Mediterranean. Yes, and to Hezbollah, of course. Yeah. So Hezbollah is directly tied to the Iranian regime in mm. that it's, a, it's effectively run by Tehran in a lot of ways. Mm. Um, and by having a path through Iraq and Syria – the Iranian government now has a direct land route link up with uh, Hezbollah so they can send them supplies and things without having to rely on air transport, mm -hmm. which in times of conflict with a country like the U.S. is a very useful thing mm -hmm. because the Americans, of course, would shoot down anything <laughs> in the sky. Soleimani. One of the things I found fascinating about this character is his almost – Immunity in that region and, and impunity also with the, in terms of his ability to just act as he so pleases. Yet you'll, you'll often hear a criticism uh, or that criticism being directed, let's say, to the United States. Say, oh, the U.S. are interfering in the Middle East and they do as they please. But actually, in real terms, they, they don't. They, they have to sort of garner the sympathies of – or not sympathy rather, but the, the cooperation of certain countries in that region in actual formal agreements, right? Um, but with the Iranians and this dude, he just went into a country with a militia, either funded a terrorist organizational or grouping, and just stoked nonsense, didn't he? Yeah, no, for sure. He definitely did that. He would often subvert the, uh, the, the governments of, re of uh, the Middle East. Um, but what's important to remember in – international politics, despite a lot of people paying lip service to uh, international law and that kind of thing, at the end of the day, what speaks in global geopolitics is power. Mm. And uh, if you can exert power, you can ignore international law. So every single country in the world that has a sort of uh, a territorial ambition or, a, or an ambition, a foreign policy goal away from their shores does this. Mm. So China, the United States, Iran, Russia, the United Kingdom, at some point or another, they do violate international law, which is why I don't take international law particularly seriously. Mm -hmm. um, but Soleimani, yeah, he he had he was one of the reasons that Iraq never really had a chance mm. of establishing a proper democratic regime after the uh, uh, the, the the American-led invasion mm. in two thousand and three. He helped to undermine that, and he also helped to engineer sectarian conflict in the country between. Sunnis and Shiites, in order to force the Shiites more into Iran's corner. So he was he he, he was a, a, a professional in in in, in the sense that it, it, it was very it's what the regime intended to do, and sent him out to do it. Exactly, um, but one of the points I wanted to make in my piece was that his killing actually kind of creates a bit of a space. So, as from what I understand of the Iranian regime, it has two major factions. The expansionists, people mm -hmm. like Soleimani, who believe they need to take over these sort of countries of nearby and expand Iran's power. And consolidationists. Mm -hmm. They're on board with the idea of the revolution, mm -hmm. and they want to spread Shia Islam uh, to, the, to the world. But they think that Iran needs to be strengthened first internally. They need to get rid of internal dissent, of which there is quite a lot. Mm -hmm. um, and they need to rebuild their economy. 
And with Soleimani's killing, there's now a door open for that faction of the Iranian government because they can look at the, the situation in the Middle East. They can say, look, we're, we've, we're facing a lot of resistance in Iraq. There's been major anti-Iranian protests in Iraq, in Lebanon against Hezbollah, mm-hmm. and we're spending a lot of money and resources. And their economy is shrinking mm-hmm. due to Western sanctions. Uh, their economy shrank by 9% in 2019. And on, on and off, and particularly now, there have been popular demonstrations where essentially the people would be going out saying, it's enough of spending Iranian money to go and shore up your power elsewhere. Spend it at home where we need it. Exactly. That's been one of the main sort of chants of the Iranian protesters um, who have faced an enormous amount of uh, violence mm. in by the Iranian regime. Um, there was an estimate, I think, by some human rights organizations in Iran that said that last year 1,500 protesters mm. were killed by the Iranian regime mm. um, for taking to the streets, for trying to sort of uh, bring down the government. Which, which in terms of the nature of the regime wouldn't particularly perturb the regime. It would perturb us and the, and, and, and the West, but it wouldn't. That, that, that would be part of the process of dealing with the dissent. No, I mean, Iran is a country that is very close to a totalitarian state. Mm. Um, it's, it has laws regulating all forms of, of life. Uh, you know, you, women have to dress in certain ways in public. Um, there's religious police who enforce the law. Uh, very strictly with with uh, beatings or arrests um, and criticism of the supreme leader of Iran, who is not the president. He actually outranks the president, a guy called okay. uh, um, Ali Khamenei, um, who is different from the founder of the revolution, who is a guy called Khomeini. Khomeini. Yeah, it's very confusing. <laughs> <laughs> but but the, the, the dress sense is the same. Yeah, they, they dress very similar. Um, it's illegal, for example, to insult him. Um, and Th- that's the acid test for me on whether, whether yeah. a place is a totalitarian state. As soon as you make it illegal to insult the, the dear leader, you, that's it. And the Iranian regime um, is very brutal on religious minorities, mm-hmm. uh, particularly people of the Baha'i faith, mm-hmm. uh, who are a group that started in Iran in something in the 1800s, I think. Um, and they form the largest rel- religious minority in the country, about 300,000 people, but they s- face severe persecution. They're spied upon by the government. Um, so the Iranian regime is a very ugly, anti-liberal regime. Mm. I heard a really funny... I, I mean, I, was, I just read what I thought was very funny. Maybe it's true, and and, uh, and if it is, then, then maybe it has potential. That Iran was sort of making life difficult for the Americans with um, rockets and other, other means of sort of harassing them. To try and get them back to the negotiate, to try and get them, the Americans, back to the negotiating table. And the reason I thought it was interesting from two points of view. One is that they actually are even thinking about going back to the negotiating table. And the other is that you don't get people back to the, if they have the power, in other words, the sanctions, you're not going to get them back by firing rockets at them. You have to actually be nice and ask nicely. To get them back to the well, negotiating table. It really yeah. depends because American foreign policy is often dictated by domestic policy. You know, mm. How popular the president is at home, what his resources are like in Congress. Um, so what really happened here was in, uh, what, I think it was 2013, the, the uh, Obama administration in the United States signed what's generally called the Iran deal. Mm-hmm. but has a much fancier real name, but we won't get into that. Mm-hmm. No, it's with a large number of European countries, which basically said to Iran, you're not allowed to develop a nuclear weapon for 10 years. And in return, we will give you some money and we will lift sanctions on your country. Um, so what appears to have happened is Iran looked at this and said, okay, well, what we'll do is we'll use the money and resources to build up our forces in the Middle East, our influence over our neighboring countries. Mm-hmm. 
we will then um, wait for the 10 years to expire and then go back to our nuclear program. Mm-hmm. Now, the Trump administration pulled out of this deal. Mm-hmm. Um, and this put Iran in a problem because the Americans immediately put back the sanctions. The Europeans didn't, by the way. They're yeah. still party to the agreement. Uh, so this then put Iran's economy under a lot mm-hmm. of pressure. And I think that they made the calculation that Trump really did not want some sort of foreign entanglement. You know, mm-hmm. he came into office by saying, oh, we're going to be rid of forever mm-hmm. wars in mm-hmm. the Middle East. So they decided to basically provoke the Americans, uh, provoke the American allies. They, um, in the, in the lead up to, 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 to the killing of Soleimani at the end of, at the mm-hmm. beginning of this year, there were attacks on oil tankers off mm-hmm. Ira- Iran's coast. Hijacking, An American yeah. drone was shot down. American military bases were shelled um, by militias in the Middle East that aligned with Iran. And half of all Saudi oil production was temporarily taken offline when mm-hmm. an Iranian missile struck the, the oil-producing facility. And this was all sort of trying so to it's poke like, it's like poke, yeah, poking the bear. Because, of course, the reason you want to do that is Trump is going on about how he wants to make a big, a great deal, mm. right? He's the deal-maker guy. Mm. That's how he, he, he positions himself. So they thought maybe if we kind of uh, shake him up a bit, he'll say, okay, we need to get rid of this issue. We can't let it go on, so we'll go to the negotiating table. Um, but just before Soleimani was killed, a uh, Iranian-backed militia had attempted to storm the U.S. embassy in Iraq. And this appears to have been the straw that sort of broke the camel's back. Right. The Americans had been very restrained in their uh, uh, response to the Iranians up till that point, directly against yeah. the Iranians. And that is when they seem to have made the decision to kill Soleimani. It, it is quite impressive because it was a direct hit. Uh, were, when you looked at the, the sort of car that was virtually non-existent or changed shape, there wasn't, da- there wasn't damage around it. So it was a very, um, a very careful tactical mm. strike and uh, politically mod- uh, important. Yeah, modern munitions, um, munis- uh, missiles, that kind of thing, they uh, are actually quite accurate. But what, when there are civilian casualties mm. or collateral damage, it's usually because of an intelligence failure. Mm. Um, so it's not that the explosives are massive, it's that they fail to realize that the crowd of people there are mm. not militants, they're like wedding goes or something. Can, can I just go back to a point you made about the fact that the Europeans have stayed in the nuclear agreement? And that means what? So if, that if, means if that America's they, not there. That means that they haven't enacted all the sanctions that they could upon okay. the Iranian regime. But what does it mean? What, what do the Iranians so interpret the, it as? The Iranians have been in an awkward position because they've this, they've been uh, prevented from doing certain technical things that mm-hmm. they would need to do to get a nuclear bomb. But now they've started to do some of those things which were not allowed. Mm-hmm. Um, so recently the Europeans have uh, invoked the dispute clause mm-hmm. of the treaty. Um, so it looks like a lot of the European countries will be forced to pull out. But mm-hmm. Iran then is also now going to accelerate its program of developing a nuclear weapon. So there's this, still a potential for, for, for risk here, but I think that uh, it's not... Um, there's no guarantee that Iran will continue mm. to pursue this action considering how costly it's been for the regime. Mm. I think the possibility exists, although, of course, it's not for sure, um, that what will happen now is uh, there will be a little bit of a pullback from Iran because they see that there's significant costs on them. The, the other interesting thing I've, I've found um, when the, the, this entire sort of news cycle broke is that ir- Iranians weren't getting, the, the regime at least, wasn't, weren't getting much in the way of support and, you know, uh, a friendly word or like, we'll, we'll stand by you. But some of the other Iranian, excuse me, uh, the other um, uh, Gulf nations, um, the Ar- Ar- Arabic, uh, Arabian nations rather, sorry, um, 
that's a very telltale sign, isn't it? Especially when certain countries also say, hey, we'll actually rather back the Americans in, in taking action against you. Yeah, so in the region, uh, America has some allies who really, really do not like Iran, namely among them, uh, the Saudi Arabia, which is... The Sunnis. And the, the growing fear of Iranian power has been one of the things that has caused Saudi Arabia to finally start making overtures to Israel and, and seeking an alliance there. Um, Iraq... And its government, when the strike happened, did actually criticize the Americans very harshly, and they passed a bill in their parliament which said um, America must withdraw its military presence from Iraq. However, a lot of it was very much a token agreement, Mm. and it had lots of vague bits about when exactly this is all supposed to happen. So, in effect, the Iraqi government was kind of playing both sides of the fence here. It was saying, oh, we're so outraged that the Americans would do something like this on our on our territory, but at the same time, it was a sort of tacit support for it in the sense mm-hmm. that we're not really going to throw you out. Okay. okay. Um, just, just one strange thing, a little a sort of side issue, is the uh, some of the, the demonstrations at the at university in Tehran um, were interesting in that you you can't, it's, you take it as a standard that when there's a demonstration, the Israeli flag and the American flag are going to be burnt and they're going to be chance of death to Israel, death to to America. And on this occasion, although flag, uh, an Israeli flag had been laid out on steps of, the air, of an area in the, in the university, the students who were protesting walked around it. They wouldn't trample it. They wouldn't walk on it, which I thought in its own little way was extremely significant. Yes, um, and that's because the Iranian regime has associated itself so closely with anti-Israel and anti-American rhetoric mm-hmm. in that to rebel against the regime there means to be pro-Israel and pro-America. Okay. I'm going to touch on that when we come back from the break because I think it, it, it is quite a significant development. Um, guys, when we come back, we are going to conclude our conversation with Ooh, Nick from the IRR. IFM 101.9 megahertz of life. Welcome back to the IRR show. My name is Big Daddy Liberty. I'm in studio, of course, with Sarah Gone and uh, Nick. Um, Laura. It's, I'm terrible too this morning. <laughs> my, 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 my mind is it's, not. It's yeah, the, it's, it's the terrible. West, West Rambo. <laughs> <laughs> um, we, we're having a conversation about Iran and Iran's negative influence in that part of the world. And of course, before the break, we we're touching on uh, you know some of the visuals we got, and I was actually very happy to see of some of these uh, protesters in Iran who are literally now raising their voice much louder than perhaps before against this regime to say, you know, your, your conduct, your behavior, your, you know, anti-human rights uh, way of governing is simply uh, something we will not tolerate anymore. Young voices getting their voice out. And the usual images of Sarah was, was making the point before the break of, you know, people burning the American flag, burning the Israeli flag. It's something we haven't seen. And if anything, there's been a respect for that. But before we get to that, mm-hmm. um, and I really want you to think about that, uh, Nick. Sarah, what do you have for us? Okay. Through Chai FM, you connect to the world, to Israel, and to gl- the global listening community. But now you connect to the heart of the station. Download our free app to listen live. Contact the studio, office, or helpline at one touch. Find it on Google App Store. That's Chai FM, all capital, C-H-A-I-F-M. Just look for the logo. The Chai FM app is brought to you by Binary Headquarters. And, you know, that, that point Nick is making, you know, there, there seems to be a, a warming of relationship. Um, between Israel and other Arab nations in that part of the world, which is a welcome reprieve from perhaps uh, the history of of, um, of the Israelis. Sarah, guys, I want us to just quickly sort of chew on this for for a moment. 
what is the scope for Israel now? What does Israel do now? Leave aside, you know, the internal, you know, politicking in Israel with the elections and blah, blah, blah. But just any Israeli leader who comes to, uh, is eventually elected and, you know, uh, there's a bit of stability there. What does that guy do? Uh, or that girl do in, in, uh, what's the word? Advancing, if you will, that, that warming relationship, relish, relationship, excuse me, in that part of the world. Well, I think it's, uh, it's probably going to be important for the Israelis to strengthen their regional alliances with countries like uh, Saudi Arabia, um, which is, you know, not a very easy thing for democratic countries to do because Saudi Arabia, of course, has a terrible human rights record. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, 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 you know, we can exactly see here the effects of what power and geopolitics mm-hmm. does to countries and how they behave. Um, the moment the balance of forces changed in the Middle East, the moment that Iran became the big threat to threaten uh, Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates and other countries like that, um, they suddenly realized that Israel was a friend and not an enemy, mm-hmm. as it had been for decades mm-hmm. previously. Um, and so politics can indeed make strange bedfellows. Um, but by, I think continuing a sort of, you know, its defensive stance against Iran and by uh, continuing to cooperate with some of those Gulf nations, Israel has a really, a real opportunity now to, in a lot of ways, um, become a normal Middle Eastern mm-hmm. country in the sense that it's accepted, uh, not just I- in fact, but also mm-hmm. in public entity, yeah. uh, by a lot of uh, Arabic uh, countries. Yeah. As you say, geopolitics makes very strange bedfellows, but it also looks it it would also help in in strengthening uh, relationships with sunni uh, countries there's to deal with to some extent uh, with the palestinian issue because i one comment i, I love that uh, a sort of senior person in qatar or one, one of the sort of the, the uae countries said with regard to the uh, palestinians sort of, uh, well you know they had the opportunity 70 years ago to make a state and they turned it down. So, you know, it was like, they can, you know, they can go, go to hell. And I th- whether they, whether that is likely to become something remotely resembling policy, I don't know. But it's also, I think, a sign of, uh, of uh, annoyance uh, that th- there has never, in reality, negotiations to resolve the, the, the situation, the conflict has actually never really been on the table. And it's never really been on the table from the Palestinian side. Yeah, so in, in the Middle East, of course, um, a lot of the Arab countries sort of uh, supported Palestine or, or helped even create Palestine in a lot of senses um, in order to weaken Israel, to distract Israel, to, to undermine Israel. Um, but now that there's no real need to do that anymore, I think there's a lot of Arab leaders who kind of look at this, they say, well, Israel's not going anywhere. Mm. Um, and we've got bigger problems now than we had you know, in the 70s. Uh, so actually it's time to put this issue to bed or at least to ignore it. Mm. Um, so for example, the king of Saudi, or the, rather the prince regent of Saudi Arabia, he's not the king yet. Um, uh, Mohammed bin Salman has, uh, recently threatened the Palestinian Authority a few times to cut their funding if they don't, uh, you know, make nice with the Israelis mm. or, or, or reduce some of their hostility towards them. Mm. Um, of course, you know, for any one country to be able to kind of put pressure on the Palestinian Authority to to really end the conflict is is not really going to work because the Palestinian uh, the Palestinians are split into so many factions now mm. um, that you know if you make a deal with one uh, Hamas and Islamic Jihad and will still be against uh, against you. So the mm. the opportunity for peace there is still, I think, going to be a little bit elusive. But the 
the chance of the conflict heating up in a big way is, I think, very unlikely. Okay. Uh, um, I suppose a lot will depend on the extent to which um, Iran, through its proxies, can deliver some really significant uh, weapons to Hamas. Exactly. Um, actually, one of the things that uh, went so, so after Soleimani's killing, there was a strike back against mm. Americans by the Iranians. Um, in which they fired 22 fairly modern, accurate ballistic missiles and yet didn't kill anyone. Mm -hmm. They also told Iraq an hour beforehand that they were going to do this, which then would have been leaked mm -hmm. to the Americans. So the Iranians had an opportunity to do some real damage. They also, uh, allegedly Hezbollah has a large number of rockets ready to go in northern, in southern Lebanon mm -hmm. to attack the north of Israel. Um, but they hold it back specifically because for them it's one of their few bargaining chips. They mm. can say to the Americans, if you do this, we will attack your ally Israel mm. with this many okay. missiles. Sorry, Karen. Um, but I think the the fact that when the Iranians retaliated, they didn't kill anyone mm. is significant, sh is significant because it shows that they really didn't want this conflict to go any further. Yeah. And they just wanted to have, symbolically have this. Yes. So bluster. And they, yeah. told, they told their own population that they had killed 80 American soldiers. Um, but there's been no independent verification of that, and the Americans, of course, have, have, have denied that. So it looks like Iran is puffing up its chest, mm -hmm. making itself look very strong, but in reality actually wants to pull back from the brink of war. Well, no, uh, sorry, sorry. Yeah. Maybe as a final question from me, um, talk to me about perhaps, like, place yourself into the minds perhaps of the Ayatollah, Ayatollahs at the moment. Mm -hmm. What are they thinking? Are they worried? Are they feeling... Um, exposed or like what, how do you think this will likely play out? Uh, very much so. I think, you know, the, the Iranians are in the worst position they've been in for a while. Their influence had grown a lot over the past 10 years. Um, and now it's, it's suddenly hit a big roadblock. Mm. The anti-Iranian protests in Iraq and Lebanon have been quite significant, particularly in Iraq, mm. where oh. they forced the resignation of the Iraqi prime minister for being too pro-Iranian. Mm. Um, and those protests are still ongoing. Uh, there are continuing protests against the regime within Iran. Mm. The economy looks set to shrink again. Um, and, of course, now their top generals can be killed by the Americans. The Americans have shown their willingness to do that. Mm. So I think that uh, they're either going to do something reckless mm. or they're going to do or they're going to back down and make peace. That would be extraordinary because of the, because the Iranian regime, the, the, the regime of the Ayatollahs, has always been seen as, as a absolutely intolerant, um, rigid uh, ideology, rigid regime, in, in every sense of the word. Um, but it's, 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 I think what, it, what, it, what, what you've said highlights something that um, underlines something I find very annoying, is you see w world reaction, um, and the comment commentators or journalists or whatever go on and say, World War III, Trump, blah, 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 um, how could they do this? The, the, but... People generally, people generally do not understand what, how it works. Exactly, because a lot of people only started following the story when Soleimani was killed. And mm. they didn't know the background. They didn't know who he was. They didn't know what had been going on in the region. Right. And they don't really understand the reasons for why all the countries are involved there. Which, to be fair, is also on the countries involved there because they don't explain themselves very well. Sure. The Americans are very vague about precisely why they're there, partly because I think they often are confused themselves. <laughs> Um, but, uh, uh, you know, geopolitics continues to work in the background, um, and this affects the way of a lot of countries behave. Mm. That was Nick Lorimer, a writer and a, an, an analyst at the Institute of Race Relations, um, with this piece on Iran, which I really encourage you to read. You'll find that on the dailyfriend.co.za. We'll see you after the short break. IFM 101.9 megahertz of life. 
Welcome back to the last five minutes of the IRR show. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with um, Nick Lorimer from the Institute of Race Relations, who wrote again on Iran and really the the geopolitics of that region. I think it was a wonderful piece. It allows you to sort of catch up if you aren't initiated on that issue um, and actually understand all the players in that part of the world. Uh, Sara, mm. as we sort of wrap up the last uh, three and a half minutes of the show. Um, you wanted to touch on the IFP's proposal mm. um, uh, to essentially create a job reservation for South Africans. Yeah, you, weird you, policy. One's always surprised at the extent to which you look. People, politicians, can look back on the uh, apartheid era for inspiration. Basically, they, essentially, what they're doing is they're looking to uh, for to create a piece of legislation that puts in place quotas. For 80%, anyone employ, must employ 80% of locals and 20% of foreigners. Um, they, they can't, they must not employ more foreigners. Um, and they, they, they sort of use the anecdotal evidence of Zimbabwean waiters in restaurants and, yeah. you know, highly, highly researched stuff, you understand. No. Um, and, you know, they, they, they cite other countries like Nigeria and Angola and Ghana, which is, if that's what they do, it's not, it's yeah. not really where we should be looking. But, but there's two fundamental issues here. The first is a sheer lack of imagination mm. economically that you cannot see, um, you cannot, cannot envision a growing economy that is inclusive, that absorbs all individuals regardless of where they're from, nationality or whatever the case may be. Um, uh, and because you can't do that, you then go in the opposite direction, which is the race to the bottom, mm-hmm. isn't it? The job reservation. I mean, you could argue other political parties do this on, on issues of race. Mm. Well, essentially, I mean, I, I, I looked at it in terms of there being three elephants in the room. The first is the porousness of our, our borders, how badly they are uh, managed, and the corruption that's involved in it. The second is the minimum, the, sequ- the second is the minimum wage, which hi- yep. inhibits access. And the third is, is there another reason why people are employing foreigners? In yep. other words, are they keener? Are they prepared to work harder? Are they less demanding? Uh, maybe as a final thought on my side, the other, the second element was the populism. Uh, the IFP is not the only party that's mm. playing to the this, this sort of uh, South Africa first type populism. And, of course, that slogan I took from the DA mm. because they literally recently used it. Um, and Herman Mashaba, the former mayor of Johannesburg, was known mm. to sort of harbor really xenophobic anti-foreigner sentiments. And, you know, it's, it's still being perpetuated if you watch his social media feed. Mm. Um, you know, it's sort of like, why are these foreigners here type rhetoric? In any event, we'll have this conversation perhaps on the next show, the next IRR show. Thank you so much for listening. Remember, you can find all our news, analysis, and opinion on the Daily Friend website. That's dailyfriend.co.za and you can find me on your social media. Just search Big Daddy Liberty and you'll find your favorite fat boy there. Guys, thank you so much for listening. We'll catch you next week.